Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We often hear about small businesses lost to corporate development in our neighborhoods. Several older taverns in Atlanta have had to shut down. But today we bring you a new series. Cheers, celebrating the bars that have beaten the odds and survived for decades. Later this hour, City Light senior producer Kim Droves looks at the 100-year-old tavern Atkins Park. First, Leonard Bernstein famously said, music can name the unnameable and communicate the unknowable. Communicating was another extraordinary talent of Bernstein. The conductor and composer is the subject of Bernstein's Wall, a recent documentary by the award-winning director and producer Douglas Tirola. The film premiered at the Tribeca and Telluride Film Festivals and will screen in Atlanta for the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival on Wednesday. The director joins me now via Zoom. Doug Tirola, welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me. It's um, exciting to be with you on this show and having our film play in Atlanta. Oh, the film is fantastic. Thank you. What was your association with Leonard Bernstein? My association, I think, like many people, is really through my mother. My mom worked for a wealthy woman who had a, a season tickets to the New York Philharmonic. And a, a woman eventually got divorced and moved to the West Coast, and she started to split the tickets with my mom. And then eventually they wound up with my mom. So my exposure to classical music and Bernstein is really through that. And then, of course, West Side Story. I mean, always knew who he was, I think, because I grew up in a house with music and, and books. But I didn't have any personal, I didn't, I didn't know him personally. Okay, because I think you are too young to have been present at many of the moments that appear in the film. For example, it opens with a close-up of Bernstein talking about Beethoven's Ninth, and 
he goes on to say, we've never had so many barriers, boundaries, walls dividing us. You impart the feeling that he is alive and speaking to us in this moment, though he died 32 years ago. Would you talk about how you structure this film? That's very insightful. So the, the structure of the film is really as if, as the way I imagined it, is that Bernstein has just played some amazing concert somewhere in Europe, and he goes back to his hotel, and he sits at the bar or the restaurant, and he ends up having a conversation with a young person, and he goes on to tell him, Bernstein tells this person his life story, but really as a way to talk about social change and art and the meaning of life, you know, his philosophy. And so the beginning, when we found that clip where he's talking about Beethoven, but being able to remove it from the lecture of Beethoven, you really see he's thinking about dates in history and dates in his own life and, and reflecting on it. So right when the movie starts, he says, you know, I'm looking for these answers and they lie deep inside my soul and I'd like to share them with you. And then he brings about the question, what is the role of art and the artist to create social change? And he says, it's not necessarily the art, it might just be the artist. And then we sort of go through his life story, but trying to get these pieces of him talking directly to us, the audience is the one, you know, the one person he's talking to, where he goes off just his, his story and just talks about his process for creating art, for working with people, all, you know, his hope in people. And even though I think if those things were removed from the film, nobody would say, oh, we're, they're, they're missing. But I think that's really why I was drawn to make the film is when I heard and read him, read his uh, writing and speeches where he says these things. I wanted to get those thoughts out into the world. I think they're very current and it's very lucky that the way he sounds does not sound 30 years ago. It sounds like he's alive right now. And for better or worse, many of the things he's talking about are challenges we still deal with today, whether they're national, global challenges or personal challenges. Indeed. I must say, almost at the opening, there is a great montage. Did you edit that montage with the music? What, what we did is we found that, that piece of music, which is from the concert you, you see at the end, you see a little bit in the beginning, which is the you know, Ode to Freedom concert, which was in Berlin in 1989, just short of two months after the Berlin Wall fell, and he performs Beethoven's Ninth. So we have that opening, and then we were just looking for pieces. I, I referred to that scene as an overture, just like in when you go see a Broadway musical and there's a little piece of what you're gonna see ahead. So it's really to sort of show you all these pieces of his life so quickly as if that's what he's thinking about. And then in the tradition of an overture in a, again, a musical theater where we hear a little bit or see a little bit in this case of um, what we're about to see in the film. Dates began to swarm into my head. Ranging from the mysterious, to the radiant, to the devout, to the ecstatic. Each one is a fierce accusation, a 
terrible challenge to what we pretentiously call our human race. We have never before in our human history had so many boundaries, barriers, walls, dividing lines on such highly unrealistic maps. David, Jesus, Schiller, Beethoven, how you must be suffering. And the, and the film was edited, it, it, it's amazing, by a first-time editor. Really? Yep. He, I mean, he's an incredible assist. He'd, he'd done a lot of assistant work. His name is Zach Obed, and this was really his first time as an editor, and it's amazing. And I can't wait for people to see the film and people in our film world to see the film so that he, he'll get more opportunities. He did an incredible job. And that balance, which you sort of see in a scene later in the film when he goes to teach, when Bernstein goes to teach, I felt that was a great thing. Zach is a little bit younger than me and the early part of his career, I've been around a little bit longer and I just was a great, a great chemistry along with you know the, the producer, Susan Bedusa. The film is nonlinear, or perhaps I should say not chronological. But certain themes recur. You mentioned, can an artist change the world? Another recurring theme is Bernstein's proud identity as a Jew. Why was being public about that pride unusual for his time? Well, I mean, I think depending on, on your family's journey, especially to America, people had different experiences about being Jewish. Some people were, you know, living in almost exclusively Jewish community. Some people were not. And, you know, there was, I think, a, a lot of reasons for people to consider hiding their Jewish identity, depending where they wanted to work, which the movie talks about as one of his mentors suggests he changes his name. I, I think earlier in his life, this is just my, my view of it, is, you know, I don't think he was in touch with his Judaism as much only because of his father so valued the religion and he had these issues with his father. But I think over time he becomes to embrace it and it becomes more of what he's talking about. As a filmmaker, I'm hoping the movie or part of what the movie says is his Judaism and his relationship with the ethics of Judaism, not, not just the religious as a whole, but the, the real philosophy and values of it is really what's driving him the whole time, I, I believe. Whether he thought that or other people would think that, but I, I believe that's really, if you think about his core beliefs and what he's trying to get out there about beliefs in people and hope in people and people can make mistakes and come back from them and bring people together, I, I think that's all derived from his relationship with Judaism. Yes, and the way he valued questioning and the importance of justice and examining things from different perspectives. Even though he wasn't traditionally religious, you mentioned earlier in his life in particular, I found it remarkable to see in the film that in Berlin in 1961, he mentioned to the audience that it was Rosh Hashanah. I, I love that you bring that up because I, I always wonder how many, if people understand what's going on there. It, it, again, at least my, my view of it, and it's why we, you know, put in the beginning of the movie, we, it's around the time the Berlin Wall is going up. 
he is performing in Berlin with the New York Philharmonic. It happens to be Rosh Hashanah, and he gives this prayer in Hebrew. And, you know, we don't know exactly who's in the audience, but if you think about how many, it's just, you know, 15 so years after the end of World War II, if you think about who's probably, or at least the children of who's in that audience, I think it's a very political act. But given in this sweet, you know, welcoming way, but I, I believe he, he knows what he's doing there more than just it's a coincidence. It's Rosh Hashanah and he decides to give this prayer. It's right, it says it right there, what he's trying to do with the fact that he's a performer and an artist and with the music and then a message. Musicians have become stylistically sophisticated. They are in a position these days to hear everything, to learn, compare, assimilate, reject, alter, and crossbreed. We become more international every day. That's really why we are here, we hundred New Yorkers in Berlin. We have come to take one more step through this kind of cultural exchange. Only this kind of rapport can bring us a peaceful world in which men can live freely and harmoniously, which is the immediate and necessary goal of this modern world. We would now like to dedicate our performance on this sacred day of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. The words of that ancient benediction are being pronounced, Yisot Adonai Panov Elechov Yosem Lecha Shalom. May the Lord lift up his face to you and give you peace. As I like to say, he's the rabbi and the cantor. <laughs> Marvelous. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis, and my guest is filmmaker Douglas Tirola. The Atlanta premiere of his documentary, Bernstein's Wall, is tomorrow, September 21st, at City Springs Theatre. He does say at one point in the film that I just loved that the most important role of a conductor is as teacher, and the most important thing the conductor does is communicate, that that's essential. Yes, I mean, I think there's a line in the movie, which is one of the, something I found early on, which again was part of the inspiration to make it, where he talks about people assume what he likes about being a conductor is that he waves his arms or points his baton and everybody does what he wants. And he says, really for him, it's this idea of trying to bring the best out of the other hundred musicians in the orchestra. And he has this great line that I, I just love where he says, what he likes about it is it's about us breathing together. It's an experience between all of us, not just somebody who's pointing and telling people what to do. And that's, um, you know, his way of communicating. And then, of course, as a conductor, when he performed this really groundbreaking thing of turning to the audience and explaining what they were going to do and histories behind some of the music and really opening it up to the audience, whether you had elite knowledge of, of the classical music, but also making it welcoming to people who, who don't have as much knowledge. Yeah, the idea of... His role as an educator was very important to him, although he's often accused of vanity and 
being a TV hound. In fact, those appearances on his show, Omnibus, and later the Young People's Concerts, opened up worlds to people. I mean, I think early on he saw the power of TV, what TV could do in terms of of getting a message out to these mass audiences. And I think going back to his Judaism, and I mean, he's a teacher. I mean, I, I think if he was not a musician, he'd be a teacher or a rabbi, maybe a, maybe a senator, but you know, the, he's always teaching, which I just, I love that. He's, oh, he, when you hear him explain things in the film, whether it's to the camera or to someone else, whether it's a musician or a student, he's always teaching and giving context of why this, why things are. Mm. Among the things I appreciate in this film is the way you treat his homosexuality. I remember when Joan Pizer's biography of Bernstein came out in the 80s, it struck me as so gossipy. And I found myself thinking, why does any of this matter? as though she had to prove something about this connection between his sexuality, his struggle with it, and his music. But the way you touch upon it is direct and very subtle at the same time. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, it's part of who he is. I think it plays into other aspects or understanding other aspects of his life. There's all these dualities in his life, you know, his family and his career, whether he wants to really be a composer, conductor, is he a New Yorker or a New Englander? <laughs> He's a, when you think about his views on things, you know, the openness of it, I think really there's a connection there. But, it, you know, he was living in a time where, as, as you see in the film, <laughs> his friend talks about burning these letters where he he discusses this you know i thought about what what his life would be if he was maybe you know lived 50 years later it's a tricky subject but i hope that we ha handled it well well when people go see the film i hope they think we we handled it where you get an understanding but it's not exploitive well i was curious about how you had access to those personal letters from his wife, I mean, early in their courtship. Yep, I mean, well, the, the, the family, the Bernstein family, his children, Jamie, Alexander, and Nina, we got permission from them to make the film and we are able to use those letters because of them. They were very supportive of the film and, you know, I hope they're not being polite when they said they liked it, but that's how we were able to get that access. Mm. Another moment that's especially moving is that with Louis Armstrong. It's, it's just a gorgeous scene in the film. Would you set that scene for us? The scene is where he, he's performing with Louis Armstrong and some of his bandmates, and they're performing with an orchestra with Bernstein. You know, in his what he says after they finish performing, and it's it's amazing to look at the two of them on stage. And when they're finished, Bernstein gives Louis Armstrong this hug, which was I thought incredible for the time. Like the, the you know just the physical connection there. 
but he talks about a time when, when hopefully there aren't these walls and these barriers that have to do with race or anything else or, or music. You know, he tries to say that the music isn't that different. And he asks the audience to look at Louis Armstrong, you know, for his, his talent and his art and, and see past what people, especially in that era, unfortunately, maybe still today, we're just seeing a man in, in the color of his skin. Ladies and gentlemen, Louis Armstrong has told me that his most honored ambition is being fulfilled tonight in playing with the New York Philharmonic. I should say that it is rather we on the longer-haired side of the fence who are honored in that when we play the St. Louis Blues, we are only doing a blown-up imitation of what he does, and what he does is real and true and honest and simple and even noble. Every time this man puts his trumpet to his lips, even to practice three notes, he does it with his whole soul. This is a dedicated man, and we are honored. is remarkable for the time period because Bernstein's involvement with social justice, with civil rights, was very sincere, and there was great depth to his involvement. I didn't realize that he was among those musicians invited by Harry Belafonte and Dr. King. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people, he's not as often recognized as being in Selma when Martin Luther King asked Harry Belafonte to, to bring people from the arts community and, and acting community and celebrities and musicians. Bernstein did come down to Selma and he, and he performed. Hmm. You also bring out the side of him that was depressive. He talks about the six-month paralysis he had after his wife, Felicia, died. And the self-doubt, the questioning. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think anybody like him who's just feeling so much, believes in so much, is sensitive, is, is sort of a two-way street. The person that can pick up on everything going on is, is also, I think, deeply devastated. <laughs> When, when people don't see what's going on with them and, and maybe need help. But, you know, when you're, when you're that big out there, you know, personality and ideas, I think there are these moments where it starts to, to get to you, which he, he talks about in, in the film. When he speaks so early in the documentary about the walls, so many boundaries and barriers between us, it made me wonder about your choice of title. Which wall are you speaking about? Well, originally, when this was just a project and, and not a film yet, it was the Berlin Wall. This idea that he came to Berlin in 1989 and we were going to have the beginning of the concert, which we have a little bit in the beginning, and it would be bookended with the end of the concert. You know, as we dug deeper into that, it, it changed. I also always looked at... He talks a lot about bringing walls down, and it's a term we heard him say more than once 
about bringing barriers down between people, but he'd say this, I use the word walls. So I believe that we're hoping people say like, this is about bringing walls down in the communities, the, the, the small communities, global communities, national, rural, urban, which he talks about at one point in the film, but it's also his own walls he's trying to get over or bring down, you know, again, all these throughout, you know, on himself. But, but ultimately, I've been asked about the title numerous times, and I'll just say, whatever works for the audience member is great with me. Filmmaker Douglas Tirola. The Atlanta premiere of Bernstein's Wall is tomorrow, September 21st, at City Springs Theater. The film is screening as part of the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival, and I'll be there tomorrow evening to introduce Tarola. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. I look forward to seeing you at the Bernstein Film. In a moment, cheers! Our new series celebrating Atlanta's oldest drinking establishments looks at the 100-year-old tavern Atkins Park. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Atlanta's landscape is constantly changing, and our city has a reputation for embracing new development at the expense of the old. At a time when we often hear about older taverns shuttering their doors, today we're launching a new series celebrating the bars that have beaten the odds and survived for decades. Here's City Light senior producer Kim Drobes with Cheers, a toast to Atlanta's oldest and most iconic watering holes. This year, Atlanta's oldest tavern celebrates its 100th anniversary. Atkins Park, originally born as a deli, has been serving the Virginia Highlands community since 1922. 
Over the years, multiple owners have helped shape the establishment, and joining me now to talk about longevity, liquor, and lounges is current Atkins Park owner, Sandra Spoon, and longtime bartender, Andrew Crow. Welcome to City Lights. Hi, Kim. Hi, Kim. Congratulations on this milestone. A hundred years is huge. It's very exciting. It's flown by. (laughs) Hasn't it? (laughs) No doubt. Well, there's so much history that I'm dying to know, but if you don't mind, let's start with the name. Back in the late 1800s, the Virginia Highland neighborhood was established and there was a planned community called Atkins Park. And it consisted of three streets here in the Virginia Highland neighborhood, St. Charles, St. Louis, and St. Augustine. And interestingly enough, Edwin Grove of the famed Grove Park Inn Resort in Asheville, North Carolina, planned the community. So it was a very walkable community. It had sidewalks, similar setbacks, and similar architecture among the houses, which is still evident in those three streets today. But in 1910, a house was built in the location we currently are on North Highland Avenue. And then in 1922, they actually lifted the house up and built the delicatessen underneath, which is currently the bar side. So what a feat to happen in 1922. And they opened the delicatessen in 1922 and named it after the community. And that's how it got the name Atkins Park. Wow. So let's talk more about lifting the house up. What did that entail? All we know is that the house was lifted because my office is literally one of the bedrooms with a coal burning fireplace. When you come upstairs to the upper story of Atkins Park, it is the original house still intact. It's our offices, it's storage, it's a meeting room, Um, but there are three old fireplaces up here. You can see some pocket doors. You can still see the front of the building where we think there was a screened in porch. It's pretty interesting. But yeah, it was amazing that they did that in 1922. And the owners of the delicatessen, from what we understand, lived up here and ran the deli downstairs. That is so interesting. So as far as Atkins Park proper, the establishment, how much of that structure has changed over the years and how much is still original? So most of the bar, the ceilings and the floor are the original to the deli from 1922. And then in 1967, the dining room was added, which became the Atkins Park restaurant and bar then. Wow. All right. So we started out as a deli and also during the time of Prohibition. Correct. So how did Atkins Park transfer into a bar and and when? So we, we think right after Prohibition, they kind of converted from just a deli that sold meats and cheeses and sodas to selling alcohol and became more of a tavern at that time, sometime right after Prohibition. So no secret prohibition rooms. There was no bootlegging (laughs) going on to the best of your knowledge. To the best of my knowledge. That's correct. But who knows what happened back then? That is true. So how did you come to be the owner? Let's see. I graduated from college and I moved to Atlanta in 1985 and I did not have a job and I happened to just land in the Virginia Highland neighborhood and I walked up the street and I asked for a job and I started here as a server and over the years worked in many, many different positions. And we had several restaurants at the time and different restaurants. And then 
I had an economics degree, so I got the opportunity to work with the controller of the group and learn the whole backside business of the organization. And then in 1994, I became a partner. So I've been here 37 years. And I don't want to say you're burying the lead, but there's a love story attached to this establishment, isn't there? There is. So yes, my late husband, Warren Bruno, actually um, bought Atkins Park in 1983. And so he was my boss for many, many years, but a great boss and a great owner. And in 1995, we were married. That is the sweetest. And was there (laughs) celebration at the bar? Of course there was. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, Andrew, welcome. And thank you so much for being a part of this. How long have you been working at Atkins Park? I have been at Atkins Park for almost 14 years. Wow, that's a long time. That's a long time in the service industry, especially so it is. when you talk to people who might not be familiar with Atkins Park, what do you tell them? What do you personally think the bar is known for? You know, it's the closest thing to like a Cheers type bar that I think Atlanta has. It's, it's a neighborhood bar. Our regulars come as often as we do for our shifts. It's, uh, it's more of a family type atmosphere than... Uh, than just, you know, just a place to go to work. It's it's a neighborhood bar. What are your regulars like? They can be a bit prickly at times, but uh, especially if you're new, but uh, once you get to know them, they become family. Mm. We've got regulars that bring in donuts for the staff uh, on a weekly basis, inside jokes. You know, it's, I've never worked in an atmosphere quite like this place. And I've worked at several other restaurants and none of them have had this feel. Hence why I've I've been here for so long. So 14 years is an incredibly long time, but considering the age of the establishment, I'm going to make an assumption that there's regulars that predate you, Andrew. Is that accurate? And they never forget to tell me about it. Yeah, we've got, (laughs) we have regulars that have been coming here since, uh, since the mid eighties and saw two of them yesterday. They, they are here as often as I am. And Sandra, are there some that predate you as well? Yes, there are regulars that have been coming in that I know of since the late 70s. They were students at Georgia Tech, and now they're in their mid 60s, and they still come in. It's really wonderful. And their children come in and their grandchildren come in. So that's what we have. We have generations of families here. And it's really, it's really awesome. Over the years, have you had any regulars that maybe some Atlantans would consider famous? One or two. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Are we going to say who some of our, yeah, are we going to name drop some of our yeah, famous people? Oh, okay. Andrew, I'll <laughs> let you do the name dropping. Well, you know, I guess yesterday was a, was a good day because um, right at the last call bell, we got a call from Mike Mills of rem fame who wanted to swing by really quick and did he dropped by for for one quick beverage for last call but he's been coming in there since the 80s as well he's good friends with uh, a few of our clientele comes in very low-key he will take pictures but uh he's just there to to hang out and and uh relax that's so cool he's such a georgia treasure yes he's great we also have i don't know CeeLo used to come in a lot CeeLo still comes yep, in. CeeLo. Who was the group that came in that was shooting the movie? Oh, yeah. So this was, um, 
uh, this was in 2012, I believe, 2011, uh, they were shooting The Watch, and we had a call about a private dining room. We happened to be very slow that day uh, or that evening, and uh, our manager was like, well, the whole restaurant's kind of a private dining room right now because <laughs> it's empty, and uh, they said, okay, well, we'll be in. Didn't give any hint as to who they would be, and um, Jonah Hill walked in and by himself, and I served him a drink. And then uh, shortly to follow was uh, Akiva Schaefer, which I believe was the director. He's lonely, the Lonely Island fame. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marissa Tomei was with them. Uh, ben Stiller was also with them. And they bought a couple cocktails and sat at uh, our window booth. What and perfect out. And timing. It, stayed, it stayed empty. It was, yeah, it was, it was odd. That almost seems meant to be. So Mm -hmm. full disclosure, Sandra and Andrew and I have been trying to chat for the last few minutes and we had some tech issues. And in the course of figuring it out, Andrew and Sandra, you both mentioned something about a ghost room and maybe that was the problem. Please (laughs) do elaborate. Well, so, I mean, it's an old house that was lifted up and uh, I have always told the tale of a haunted upstairs to the new hires just to keep them in line a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about any evidence you've had of it in the past, aside from our tech issues today. I've seen no real evidence except for one picture, which I find to be very suspect of the old delicatessen. And uh, the only way I can describe it is a woman's face coming out of a wall where it shouldn't be. And it's there's nothing reflective on the surface. I don't know. And I don't like to speculate. But Oh, speculate, please. The upstairs is haunted, obviously, in the one room in particular, <laughs> and it causes feedback issues <laughs> and cuts off recording. And we do call it the ghost room. There is a photograph that does have a reflection of a woman in the deli counter. And oddly enough, she looks exactly like my daughter when she was about oh. six or seven years old. It was It's really kind of spooky. But we do have management that says, oh, I heard something back there or something was moved. They they swear. I, I personally have not seen anything either, but the ghost room has been spoken about for many, many years now. Oh, wow. And so this picture, is this on the walls of Atkins Park? Yes, it is. Well, it's on the wall in the upstairs meeting room. It's been up since I yeah. started here. Is there anything on the walls in the public areas that people always seem to comment on? Well, the first thing is not even on the wall. It's on the bar. We have these brass plaques on the bar. And this was started back in the 90s. And you could get your, if you're a regular, you could get your brass plaque on the bar. And then it got to the point where I was like, we have to stop this because the bar is going to be a solid brass plaque, which is difficult to clean. (laughs) And it is a beautiful, like 60 foot long mahogany bar. And I was like, we have to stop this. So now to segue into another thing, we're having this charity golf tournament and part of the fundraising will be to buy a raffle ticket to potentially get your brass plaque on the bar because there's a lot of people who would like to have their name. There's a waiting list (laughs) to get on that bar. So how does a waiting list actually work, though, when a bar is already completely full of plaques? Well, I will say it's not completely full. There are plenty of spots, Sandra. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I I worked nights for... 11 years before the pandemic, I was strictly nights. And I would say that's the most talked about thing. The most questioned thing besides what beers do you have on tap 
is what are these plaques? And, you know, the regulars that have been here for years, they're already on there. They have a, a, a chip on their shoulder about those plaques. Nobody else gets them. But I've been there for a long time and my name isn't on there. And a lot of my regulars that I have cultivated, their names aren't on there. And so I've got uh, a list in my head that I actually put down on paper. Uh, of all my friends and then it extends to uh people that used to come in on the weekends it's it's incredible how many people still ask every shift well how do you get your name on this bar tim do you wouldn't you Tim, you hear him throwing me (laughs) under the bus i do so what is andrew gonna have to do to get his friends names on the bar actually at this point my name on the bar that's (laughs) (laughs) um so obviously I stopped the plaque thing many, many, many years ago. And um, it's good conversation among the regulars. I think yeah. when Andrew's here 20 years, he can get his name on the bar. Okay. <laughs> Dangling that carrot. Andrew, as the bartender of current and 14 years at that, do you think there's any particular drinks that people associate with Atkins Park? Jaeger. It's the lifeblood of Atkins Park. Kim, my late husband, Warren, brought Jaeger to the state of Georgia back in the late 80s. And we were one of the first bars to sell it. And oh, we, what does that mean exactly? That means he worked with a distributor to get Jaegermeister in the state of Georgia and they got it. Huh. He started carrying it and people either loved it or hated it. But we do have a tradition of the six o'clock shot. So every Friday night at six o'clock, we ring the bell and we hand out a free shot of Jägermeister to anyone here at Atkins Park at that time. We just toast to the week, the weekend, and tell the customers uh, about any events we have coming up. But we are known for our six o'clock Friday shot. We are yes. known. Cold Jäger tap, I'm assuming? No. Frozen bottles. No, no frozen, frozen, frozen bottles. Frozen bottles. Yep. It's cold. It's cold. <laughs> Jaeger is polarizing, as you mentioned. Yes. And warm Jaeger is not even polarizing. I no. agree. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants that. So, with all of this Jaeger flowing at different times, would you be comfortable sharing a story from perhaps what internally you still talk about as, oh my God, that night was so crazy? Did so, you hear uh, the pause from both of us? <laughs> I so uh, I will say, like, in regards to the Jaeger, we, with our anniversary parties and our customer appreciation parties that uh, that are always a big to-do, uh, we used to, before the pandemic, we would do ice sculptures and luges Ooh. specifically for Jaeger. I've seen them in the shape of a, a, the stag's head, sure. a giant emblem of the Jaeger symbol, but I don't know how crazy those nights were on the scale of crazy nights. Sandra, what's your memorable crazy night? You know, mine is more the employees playing pranks on each other. Uh, Oh, do tell. (laughs) Yeah. So in the 90s, we had a restaurant called Groundhog Tavern in underground Atlanta, and we had two life-size stuffed groundhogs wearing denim clothing as the greeters. I know it was so cheesy, but it was the nineties. But (laughs) when we closed Groundhog Tavern, the groundhogs went into storage. And then a couple of years later, the storage unit was cleaned out and those groundhogs were dropped off at Atkins Park. And I mean, they're big, they were big furry groundhogs and (laughs) the employees thought it would be fun to hide them in closets or dark spaces. So when you opened a door, there was this giant groundhog staring at you and 
it went around the building in different locations for a couple of weeks until one night one of my bartenders got me. I came in one morning to open and I was getting the safe open and I turned around with the banks in my hand and he had hit it, hidden the groundhog in the back of the closet. And I turned around and saw it and I thought it was a very giant person. And I screamed and I threw the money and I threw the banks and the money went everywhere and it just scared me to death. So I was like, that's it. So I put the groundhogs (laughs) on the curb out front for the, for trash collection. They were in pretty bad shape also. And then about 10 minutes later, I hear sirens and I look down from the upper story windows and I see an ambulance and fire department and police all standing around the groundhogs laughing because somebody had called in that there were people laying on the street in front of Atkins Park. (laughs) And it was crazy. It was crazy to watch all these personnel, these first responders just standing there laughing at groundhogs laying on the ground. And uh, I think they ended up taking them away. So they probably continued their journey on Pranky. (laughs) Just jealous I never got to see the groundhog. I love that story. I love that your reaction was to throw the money. (laughs) I did. I was immediately (laughs) throw it. It went everywhere. All the coins, all the money just went everywhere. Which is not a typical Santa reaction. It is not. Um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty collected, but uh, that, that, that was not the case with the giant groundhog staring at me. Anyways, I mean, there's great times here. We've had crazy nights. We have had crazy nights. Yeah, the game six of the World Series has passed. That was, uh, was cleaning champagne off the ceilings the next day. It was uh, insanity. It was just amazing to watch. People just couldn't stop jumping and screaming. And it was really beautiful just to see how happy they were. Well, I want to just close out and, you know, aside from congratulating you guys on your anniversary, also give you kudos for surviving the shutdown of the pandemic, which not everyone has been able to do. Do you feel like Atkins Park is pretty much back to normal at this point? We are close. We used to be open seven days a week and we're open five days a week now, mainly for labor shortages. But we, I think, have weathered the storm, pivoted where we needed to be, pivoting, uh, adjusted how we operate. It was just a whole new, as for any restaurant, just a whole new way to run your business and rethink how to run your business and how to staff your business. But I think we made it through and we're going to stay here for a long time. Atkins Park owner Sandra Spoon and longtime bartender Andrew Crow, speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Droves, Atkins Park's 100th anniversary charity golf tournament is September 28th, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylight. Coming up, Film Crew Files, our series highlighting the many local professionals that keep our city's film industry thriving. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is 
City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. It's time now for our series, Film Crew Files, where we hear from some of the many Atlantans that help keep our city's film industry thriving. Hi, my name is Kyle Carey. I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and currently live in East Lake. I've been working in the film industry for a little over 10 years now as a location manager and location scout on various productions. A typical day for a location manager and scout, that's probably part of the beauty of it is that there, there really isn't a typical day. It, it could vary drastically depending on uh, which production you're working on and, and at what point in that production uh, you are in terms of are you on the front end and still scouting for filming locations or are you uh, currently coordinating the logistics of filming on location once something has been selected. Part of this job is that it, it can take you in any direction on any given day uh, and that's, that's part of what I love about it. I kind of fell into the industry by chance. I received a phone call asking if I wanted to be a football player, background actor in the movie The Blind Side. So that kind of exposed me to the industry and uh, piqued my interest. And I eventually started reading about the tax credits and what seemed to be a, a growing business here in Georgia. And eventually took a production management course my last semester and very briefly learned about the role of a location scout and just thought that that was the perfect job. And that's what I wanted to do. And just by chance, a location scout met my aunt because they were filming in her neighborhood. And that person was kind enough to talk to me and uh, eventually helped me get my first job on set. My favorite part of the job is, is probably on the, the front end of the production in the location scouting itself. It's what initially piqued my interest in the industry, and it's where a location manager really gets to have some input on the creative side of the storytelling uh, for each show. And we collaborate closely with the production designer and the director, and hopefully find what ultimately will become another character within the show in the location itself. Uh, it, it takes you to places that you never dreamed you'd get to go. It introduces you to people that you never thought that you'd get to meet. Uh, and those, those combined are, are two of my favorite aspects of, of what I do in the industry. The hardest part of the job is probably trying to be that bridge between fantasy and reality and that there is a story that we are trying to capture on camera and when doing that on location, uh, there's usually a pretty significant footprint involved and we have to be able to control what is actually seen in frame while simultaneously being mindful of the fact that we are guests in the area and our work needs to be done properly and, and safely, which requires a tremendous amount of coordinating and communicating. And that's the ultimate responsibility of our department is to make sure that it, it is done properly, that we are mindful of, of the real world around us and that ultimately we would be invited back to that location for more filming in the future. Probably the most memorable production that I've been a part of would have to be Stranger Things working on it the past seven years, it's, it's not only become a significant percentage of my career, but also a very big portion of my life And that, you know, so much time and effort is put into each and every season. Uh, and the people that I am fortunate enough to work alongside on that show have in many ways become some of my closest friends. And that is, is something truly special to me. And the response that we've seen to the show overall is a dream come true and, and, and really something that we're fortunate to be a part of. I do feel like I owe a lot to the film industry. Um, it's literally all that I've done since school, uh, specifically in my role in the location department. And that has provided a career uh, that allows me to pay my mortgage, 
to provide for myself and my family. And I feel very fortunate to be a part of it, uh, and specifically in my role, where I get to help bring productions to the state of Georgia and have a hand in, in making sure that it's, that it's being done properly. Location manager and scout, Kyle Carey. More information about Carey and our Film Crew Files series is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., playwright Kenneth Jones and director Thomas W. Jones II will tell us about Georgia Ensemble Theater's production of Alabama's Story. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.